Hello, and thank you for listening to St. Mark's Cathedral Conversations. Just so you know, the following interview with Canon for Cathedral Music, Michael Kleinschmidt, was recorded on March 2nd, before the establishment of social distancing guidelines. Welcome to St. Mark's Cathedral Conversations, a podcast featuring members of the St. Mark's Cathedral community in Seattle, Washington. These interviews feature lives of faith and adventure, service and connection. Here's our host, Michael Pereira. There's a running joke at St. Mark's Cathedral that if you need any kind of help, all you have to do is say Michael and someone will come to your rescue. (laughs) And one of those Michaels is my guest today, canon musician Michael Kleinschmidt. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today on St. Mark's Cathedral Conversations. It's my pleasure, thank you. There are so many things I'd love to talk about. I'd love to ask you about the Flentrop and about the Cathedral Choir and all the wonderful people who contribute their voices and their musical talents to the ministry and the tapestry of this place. But before I get too deep into that, I, I'm really curious about you. I'm really curious about how church life began for you, how church music began for you, and then we'll get to eventually how St. Mark's came up on your radar. But how did this, how did your musical journey and your church journey start? <laughs> well, it began when I was a child because uh, my father was a Lutheran pastor. And so <laughs> I came to it honestly. Um, I I can't remember a time when I wasn't in church uh, because he was um, up in the you know the chancel uh, preaching or or uh, presiding at the Eucharist. My mother and my sister and I were usually sitting together in a pew, and um, I uh, I I I don't remember when it started, but um, I I remember being very taken with the organ and. This little church, which uh, the, the first church I remember being in, was a, a tiny parish in Kugenema, Japan, where my father was a missionary. Oh, wow! And uh, the organ was a little um, foot-pumped reed organ, you know, like you like people had had in their homes right. in the in the uh, early twentieth century. You know, it's kind of a wheeze box. It was not a pipe organ, but it's still nonetheless. Uh, captured my my attention and and I also took great delight in learning to sing the hymns uh, with my mother's help in the very simplest of Japanese uh, alphabets the the so-called uh, hiragana so the the characters that children learn um, I could sound them out okay. and I could uh, read the notes almost as good as I could read the hiragana I made the sounds that I had no idea what I was singing about. So he was just going phonetically. It yeah. Like, wow. Yeah. It was like like learning to sing just by going la 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 la, but huh. with you know more more uh, of a variety of consonants and vowels than that. But uh, I don't know, I don't know whether that really um, colored my kind of f- early formation in church music or or not. Um, but I, I remember that very distinctly as being something that brought me a, a lot of pleasure. I was about seven, I think, when I heard, heard my first pipe organ, and it was in the Tokyo Lutheran Center. It's uh, one of those places that we were supposed to, supposed to go to from time to time to just kind of check in with mm. HQ, as it were. And um, 
there was a small pipe organ about the size of the one in our chapel, Thompson Chapel, and uh, it was high up in the in the rear gallery, and I heard this sound coming down, and I looked up, and there were these beautiful silver pipes, and mm. I said, Mom, what is that? <laughs> and she, being somewhat of an organist herself, said, well, you know, that's this. And so I got to meet the organ builder. turns out later he and his family were members of of this uh, little church in Kugenema. Um, they didn't attend regularly until I was a little bit older. And then it all kind of came together. I became friends with his daughter, who was my age. She played uh, the piano way better than I did at that stage. And I just was in awe of everything she did, most of which was music by Bach. My very first collection of, of piano music was a collection of, of simple pieces by Bach. And I just devoured them. This, so this started really early for you. And yeah. from so many places, you had this influence of church music and classical music and the appreciation for the timelessness of it. The fact that this was happening in Japan, I mean, it's not that mm. this was happening in Western Europe or the United States, yeah. but not, not to be too uh, small-minded about that, in a very unlikely place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Although, I mean, really, the, the Lutheran missionaries functioned, uh, well, as, as just that. I mean, they really thought they were bringing this great gift to Japanese culture uh, from the end of World War II mm. through the 80s. Um, that movement has uh, waned in its zeal. Um, other things have taken precedence, I think, in the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, which is uh, our brand, as it were. Um, but at the time, uh, the Japanese people who were building, um, you know, kind of rebuilding their nation in light of an American victory, if you will, um, they looked to the West for guidance in so many ways and took the very best of whatever we had to offer. And I think they, in that way they were thirsty for Western manners, Western culture, Western religion. Hmm. And then we were all too happy to oblige. I had this notion as a little kid that, you know, we were missionaries in the sense of going into the wilds of some far exotic land, but really... We were in one of the most civilized countries on the planet, yeah. participating in in uh, their kind of reopening to the West, as it were. Whether in a, in the long run that was a good thing to be doing or not, uh, I I really can't answer. But it certainly um, gave my childhood a lot of color. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. How did you go from that to? being a church organist and presumably it wasn't a straight line from that to St. Mark's. No, no, no. I, um, uh, when we moved to the United States, I was eight and um, continued piano studies. My, my mother had started me uh, when I was five, but I continued then with a, a new teacher um, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Oh. And um, she, she was just great at sort of taking me through intermediate um, piano books and um, expanding my repertoire. I think it was when I began to accompany the choirs in my grade school. It was a Lutheran grade school, and we all sang, of course. Um, but when I went from being a singer to being an accompanist, suddenly I felt like, oh, this is fun. And <laughs> and I, it was so wonderful to be asked to, to do that, because yeah. no one uh, among my peers was being asked to to take on that responsibility, so I felt very 
important. You know, we all like to be affirmed in one way or another. Mm -hmm. And um, it kind of caught on uh, that this was um, not only something I love to do, but uh, met a need in, in the little school I went to. Yeah. So um, in high school, I focused much more on piano than on organ. I, I always had a, a job playing the organ on Sunday mornings, first in a Veterans Administration Hospital in Fort Wayne. They had a chapel uh, with a little Hammond organ, and I used mm -hmm. to make $14 a service. <laughs> uh, then um, I played for a Christian science church in downtown Fort Wayne, a beautiful building with a very fine two-manual uh, Aeolian Skinner organ that they took great care of. They were very proud of it, but it was a dying congregation. And uh, uh, eventually, I, and I, I went off to college, and when I, I, I enrolled at Oberlin Conservatory of Music in Oberlin, Ohio, with the intention of um, pursuing both piano and organ. Uh, after a couple of years there, it became clear that organ was really the, the, the way I should go. And I also, uh, after my second year there, I became aware of the richness of the Anglican church's music. Up until that point, it was all Lutheran all the time. And, uh, you know, how it is when you leave home and go to school, you get opened up to uh, all kinds of other traditions. Um, I had never had Jewish friends before I went to Oberlin. Um, I had no idea what all of that was about. And, uh, but a good friend of mine had this fabulous collection of long playing records. Do you remember those? <laughs> and the, they were of the choir of King's College Cambridge and um, the cathedrals in England. And, and what captured my uh, attention as much as the music was the poetry of the anthems and the hymns that the choirs and these recordings were, were, were singing. Uh, the poetry spoke to me uh, of, about, about Jesus and about God in ways that, uh, as, a, as a pale young Lutheran, I just had not really encountered before. Um, it's hard to put my finger on what it was exactly, but um, it, I was deeply touched by it. So by the time I was a junior and senior in college, I, I was becoming very enamored of the Anglican tradition, and um, after graduating, I went for a year to Vienna on a Fulbright grant. And uh, even though I was surrounded by, you know, imperial Roman Catholic <laughs> Austria, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just a great, great city. Um, nonetheless, I sought out the local Anglican parish. And I, I remember going to a few things there. Um, um, I also managed to make my way to London during a couple of weeks of holiday and checked out St. Paul's and then went to Cambridge and checked that out for the first time. And it was like, uh, you know, just going on a pilgrimage to oh, yeah. behold in person these places that were responsible for this wonderful music that I'd become so enamored of. After the year in Vienna, I came back to the States and went to the Eastman School of Music for a degree, a, a master's degree. So both my, my degrees are in organ performance from basically music trade schools. And um, along the way, I took as many uh, 
electives in English and religion and, and even biology of all things um, as a process of, of kind of elimination of possible career choices. <laughs> um, my first job in the Episcopal Church was when I was a, uh, a student in graduate school at, at Eastman in Rochester, New York. I um, was appointed a part-time organist and choirmaster of St. Peter's Episcopal Church in Geneva, New York, which is about an hour southeast of Rochester on the northern end of one of the Finger Lakes. It's a beautiful town, and um, it was a wonderful place to work, a wonderful, warm, vital parish, not big and fancy by any stretch of the imagination, but um, just a delight. And that's where I first got to know the, the hymnal 1982 and oh. the Book of Common Prayer. Um, after graduate school, I got the most extraordinary um, opportunity to go to New York City and be an apprentice uh, and work full-time as assistant organist at St. Thomas Church, Fifth Avenue in Midtown Manhattan. And uh, there, I, I practiced my butt off. I remember even having <laughs> calluses uh, <laughs> because... There was so much about that repertoire that they do there, and they do, I mean, in one year they'll do five times what most churches in the United States do. Um, it functions like an English cathedral. They have even song almost every day, and so I, I just had to learn so much music. I had to learn how to accompany the psalms. I had to learn how to negotiate a very large pipe organ with pipes scattered all over the room, and um, and also uh, there, the the hallmark of their of their music program uh, their, call, their calling card if you will is the St. Thomas Choir of Men and Boys which has its own school for the boy choristers where they live and breathe and eat and sleep and you know music yeah uh, so I learned a lot about how uh, how to work with kids to get this amazing sound out of them um, and and to cultivate in them the same kind of love of this repertoire that I, that I had. But one of the things that struck me about my kind of years of formation uh, working at St. Thomas is that um, as I became more and more familiar with the poetry of our hymnal, for example, um, contrasted with the, a lot of the hymns I grew up with, there's much more of a celebration of ambiguity and room for mystery in the Anglican tradition than the Missouri Synod Lutheran tradition. I'm not saying that one's better than the other. They're just, the, the, the Anglican one uh, just spoke to me. Mm. And, and I think that what, what binds us all together, us being those people who worship in Episcopal churches or Anglican uh, foundations anywhere in the world is a love of the liturgy and and the the space it holds for faith doubt and everything in between um, and and the the poetry of our hymns and and anthems often often sounds like a, a kind of a love song to God um, and I don't mean in a ushy gushy way, <laughs> but in a deeply um, profound, uh, 
way that that uh, love songs maybe not the right word uh, they're songs of longing for wholeness and uh, and a kind of a, an acknowledgement that that longing can only be met when we are reunited with the great giver at the heart of the universe, <laughs> if you will. And reunited in community as well. Yeah. To come together to sing or to listen to a choir sing. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty hard to practice this <laughs> faith alone. <laughs> Good luck. Because, um, yeah, some of it just, so much of its richness comes from corporate acts, whether it's um, being in the pews together or being in a choir together. I know for myself, listening to the choir perform an anthem, listening to them lead, on the one hand makes it easy to follow, but it's a wonderful thought that my voice is joining theirs. Mm -hmm. Me not being a singer, or mm -hmm. you know, not having musical training at all, mm -hmm. but to think that we are together in this. And certainly there are times it's wonderful just to stop and listen to the choir, yeah. as I do. But w for certain prayers and for certain parts of our service, to feel that we are doing this together. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Yeah, that, that means so much to me because that's, that's kind of the heart of what we're trying to do here. Um, going back to St. Thomas, uh, it was a great experience, a great education, the best kind of non-doctorate I could ever hope for, <laughs> uh, but I realized that it was a very unusual expression of uh, Anglicanism in this country, right. and it was in, you know, some people look at it and say, oh gosh, it's kind of an English museum, um, it's more British than the British, um, and, and there's, I can, I can understand that uh, viewpoint, um, nonetheless, I, I knew I needed uh, to kind of carve out my own niche and and I needed to um, you know just sort of spread my wings and 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 cease to be an assistant organist and, and become director of music someplace so I moved to Boston and took up a full-time job as director of music of a small anglo-catholic parish in in Dorchester Massachusetts which is a southern neighborhood of Boston and um, it was a wonderfully integrated parish uh, with many West Indian people and uh, um, Irish, de descendants of Irish immigrants who um, had become disenfranchised with the Roman Catholic Church and uh, nonetheless loved the, the um, pre-Vatican II rite that they found in this Anglo-Catholic Church. So it just met a lot of people's needs and um, it's very much a smells and bells kind of place. Capes and drapes, <laughs> incense everywhere. Yes, lots of smoke, and um, I I learned so much there just by making my own problems and trying to fix them. Hmm. And uh, after eight years of that, I um, I knew I needed a, a broader experience, so I went to Trinity Boston as the associate musician. That's a very big, kind of a big tent kind of parish. Um, not high church at all, uh, known for its um, wonderful preaching tradition. Phillips Brooks was rector of the parish in the 19th century. And, uh, but it has strong choral tradition, and um, it, it was no longer just you know a men and boys thing I was doing. It was girls, adults, uh, grandparents, 
men, women, professionals, amateurs, dogs, cats, every, you know, <laughs> it was, uh, the whole shooting match. And again, I, I just learned so much from that much broader experience of church. Um, but it's all along the way, I, I just longed uh, for a position on the West Coast. And I don't really know what that's about, except it may have something to do with having been raised in Japan and, yeah. and having missed the the mountains and and especially the mountains in the shape of Mount Fuji, which oh, was wow. a big feature of my daily walk to school. When you I could was see it every day. Yeah, well, oh. if it wasn't cloudy, I had played some uh, recitals at Trinity Cathedral in Portland, Oregon, in the two thousands. And when that job uh, came open after a long tenure by John Strage, my predecessor there, he'd been there thirty seven years. When he retired. Um, I was offered the job and got it, and uh, we, Mark and I moved from Boston to Portland. <laughs> Big change. <laughs> and, um, you know, there I could look at Mount Hood and pretend I was seeing Mount Fuji all over again. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the pipe organ in that church is, uh, uh, like, like the Flintrop here, uh, a notably beautiful instrument for organists to play, and um, uh, I enjoyed that so much. But... The, the dean who hired me, after about four years working together, announced that he was moving on to another, uh, another job and <laughs> left. And I had been through enough interim uh, situations where I, I needed to kind of serve as, as, as a, a, a glue f uh, to hold things together between rectors. <laughs> Um, both at Trinity Boston and at All Saints Ashmont in Dorchester. That, I, I really didn't want to go through that again. And um, um, I learned that St. Mark's was coming open because Mel Butler was retiring. And I thought, wow, well, that's a, it seemed like a real long shot to me because St. Mark's has this exalted tradition, thanks to Peter Halleck and Mel Butler, um, and the, the Compline tradition and the presence of the Flintrop organ, which for organists is a real landmark in this country. For all those reasons, I thought, oh, Lord, I'm not worthy. Um, but I applied for it because I really wanted to stay in the Pacific Northwest, <laughs> Pacific Northwest. And I, and I really felt called to take on a bigger challenge than the Portland job could provide at the time. So... Miracle of miracles, uh, I, I was um, offered the job. And uh, Steve Thomason, our dean, came to Portland and took me to lunch. And I, I was very impressed by the fact that he drove all the way to, to Portland in mid-December of all times wow. to um, issue the invitation in person. I had to think about it for a while because, again, Mark and I were very happy in Portland, but this just seemed like where the Holy Spirit was moving me to go. And I, I just I know you you, you must obey her, uh, <laughs> or die. <laughs> yeah, even when it's inconvenient, you know all the the wonderful stories of of Abraham being told by God, well I want you to pick everything up and move, yep. and then Moses being told, okay, you know I need you to liberate my people, and you know they're all those stories are part of our tradition for a reason because sometimes. God wants you to move even when you're comfortable. Yeah. Or especially when you're comfortable. <laughs> At its most challenging. Yeah. It's not like you, as much as you were looking, I think, for some stable leadership, uh, not stable leadership, but just more continuous leadership, mm -hmm. 
as you said, you you and Mark were happy at, mm -hmm. in Portland, and you'd only been there four years. Yeah, it's not a long period of time. Really. No, it was hard to leave so so soon. Yeah. Kind of just gotten settled. And but what were your impressions of St. Mark's when you first came here? Oh, I just thought, what a hideous building. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was bef that was back when it was literally crumbling concrete on the outside. Yeah. The inside, of course, is you know it's awe-inspiring. Uh, Mark and I came as visitors in 2010, five years before I was on the staff, um, because I had a free Sunday in Portland, and we just thought, let's let's go to Seattle for the weekend and check things hmm. out. And so we came to St. Mark's. I got to go to O Antiphons that oh. December, and um, I remember being very impressed with the coordination of that liturgy, banners, multiple choirs, and just the richness of of the whole concept of O Antiphons. Um, in 2012, Mel invited me to come up and play a recital on the Flintrop organ. Uh, the so you had had some experience with Yeah, it. yeah. And I, of course, I fell in love with the organ and thought, wouldn't it be nice to play that every week <laughs> instead of just once in a blue moon? Um, so I was very impressed with St. Mark's and very impressed with Steve. I felt like in him there was... Um, I, I would have a really uh, solid um, uh, colleague and leader hmm. to to work with here, um, and it was rather exciting to. Um, I, I mean, I perceived that St. Mark's had gone through a kind of a rough patch um, in terms of its leadership, and Steve was was working hard to kind of, you know, in a nutshell, rebuild the place. I'm thinking of the building. Um, obviously, this parish has a wonderful, dedicated core of parishioners who just have, have been uh, a steady stream of lifeblood through thick and thin here. Um, but in terms of St. Mark's ability to um, reach out with secure footing and not be toppled over as it reach, that reaches out. Yeah. Um, in, in that way, I felt like Steve was doing some great rebuilding work, and it was exciting to, to imagine being a part of that. So that's why I took the job, and um, I'm not at, I, I'm so glad I did. I, I don't regret it for a moment. You've talked a lot about the experience of playing the flintrop. What is it actually like to be at those keys? <laughs> and to look up and see those pipes stretching all the way up to the ceiling? Well, it's a thrill. There's just no doubt about it. What few people realize, though, is that when you're seated at the console, much of the sound is going out over your head, and you don't really get a sense of how it sounds to people downstairs. You have to record yourself a lot with, I have a little digital recorder that I set up on the pulpit um, when I want to really get a sense of how what I'm doing is playing in the mm -hmm. room. And um, of course, just sitting and listening to other people play it is very instructive too. But yeah, in that way, it's not as, it's, it's actually in, in many ways more thrilling to be on the floor listening to it <laughs> than to be listening from the console. And it's, um, you know, the, the connection from the keys to the pipes is very uh, long because it's such a, t like you said, it's such a tall organ case. Yeah. And so there are wooden trackers that c 
connect the keys all the way to where the pipes are, three stories higher. And they're very light pieces of wood, which in and of themselves don't create a lot of weight. But when you couple the keyboards together and have multiple sets of trackers moving at the same time, the key action becomes heavy, much heavier than that of a piano. And you really kind of have to put your, your whole upper body weight into your playing in a way that I'm still getting used to. Even after all these years? Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's, it's an, well, because it's so spread out across the wall and up to the top of the, yeah. of the building, uh, it's just a, a, you're moving a lot of mass. <laughs> um, yeah, no pun intended. Yeah. Right? Well, <laughs> you're, or pun intended, indeed. <laughs> um, in Boston, I played an organ for many years with um, electric action. So it didn't matter one hill of beans how many pipes you were blowing or how many uh, trackers you were moving. It, the, the key was simply an on-off switch, and it was very light no matter what. And uh, frankly, I prefer the mechanical action. I'm glad to be playing that yeah. kind of thing here. It's what I was trained on in college. Um, There's got to be a, a deep connection between the physical effort of creating that sound and then when you hear it, the the sheer force of it too. Like you said, it's not simply touching one of the keys and then that sound comes out. You really have to push yourself physically, mm. which I had no idea about. I mean, when I watch the live stream, you make it look effortless. <laughs> and I know there's so much more that goes into that. Yeah. But now that, that makes so much sense. It, it really is not... Uh, it, I don't work up a sweat... Uh, <laughs> Unless I've coupled the, the manuals together. By themselves, they're remarkably light, especially the bottom keyboard. It's, it's a real joy to play. I think um, those trackers go underneath the organ bench and under where the choir is seated and all the way to that chest of pipes that you see on yeah. the gallery rail. And um, that action was rebuilt by Paul Fritz, who's a genius for building light actions. And um, he's a, a local builder. He's in Tacoma. And he built our chapel organ. But um, playing that keyboard is especially uh, is, a, is a great joy. It's, it's extremely responsive and sensitive and not heavy. The greatest pleasure of this organ, I think, is, is, is the acoustic of the room. The acoustical environment that it's in is so live. So when you release one of those massive chords... Listening to the echo in the room is a singular joy. There's, it's, it's fairly common in Europe and all those great big stone cathedrals, but here in the States, it's rare. We have so many over-upholstered churches in the United States. Yeah. And the upholstery just sucks up all the sound. So. And it's a chance to actually hear what you've been doing. Because the, <laughs> the, the building gives something back to you uh, as an organist, which is very gratifying. Even in my head now, I can hear so many times when you or John Stonebeck's been playing something, and like you said, just that moment of taking your keys off and then before the presider starts speaking or before the service can see, whatever it is, mm -hmm. just that second or so of feeling that sound, mm. audibly, certainly, but also orally as well, that you can hear it bouncing off the walls and coming back. Mm. That is, to be in the space and feeling that wash through you, yeah. That is an incredible experience. Very similar to the choir, too. When the choir finishes singing a piece, yeah. and again, there's a second of silence before the presider or the service continues, it's much the same where you can 
I mean, it's tough to think that we're in a room that's something, a hundred foot high or something, but you can almost feel the sound going all the way up mm. and then coming back down to you. Mm. And the way you explain that, that it, and, and also that where you are, you don't always get to hear that, but in those few seconds, that's, like you said, the building giving back. Yeah. Wow. It's a, it's a kind of a holy feedback loop. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to think it's, it's God giving, you know, kind of as if in a great tennis match with God, you, you, you serve up uh, the ball and um, actually God serves it up. And you hit it, and then God hit it, hits it back, and um, you know that back and forth, uh, making this up as I as I go. It's, it's hard to put into words, but yeah. you know, it's it's one of the. I speak of how gratifying it is to be an organist and hear that echo. The choir loves it, um, but it allows the congregation to be aware of themselves as a group of people. You can be singing a hymn. Uh, in the nave, and I've experienced this myself, being in the pew from time to time, and I've, I'll feel like I'm the only one singing until that echo happens mm. at the, after the last chord, when we've all finished together, and then you hear that echo, then you, you hear all the voices that right. you didn't hear while you were busy singing, and suddenly um, the awareness of being part of community is a, an aural uh, reality. And that speaks so much to the, to the the reasons behind the importance of music in our tradition. Yes. That was one of the things that surprised me when I first started to become a regular at St. Mark's, was how much of the liturgy is musically oriented or based. Yeah. How much is sung, how much is chanted. Yeah. And to think that, again, we are a part of that. And in those seconds, we can hear and feel that we're not doing this alone. Again, right. back to the importance of community. Yeah. Whether with the choir, whether with the presider, whether with the organ, that our voices are joining together to offer something, a prayer or a meditation. It's tough to get that without a sense of music. Mm -hmm. Is that one of the things that being canon musician entails? To know this and to, to feed into it? I think absolutely. Um, my first responsibility, I think, is to encourage hearty singing from the congregation in the pews. And I, I think of the organ and the choirs as assists in that endeavor. Uh, and I, I like to, th on those Sundays when the choir is off, like in the summertime, I really, I love the fact that, in a way, I've done my job when the choir is not needed anymore, or, or when I'm not needed anymore. When the <laughs> congregation just takes off on a hymn, mm -hmm. and uh, I mean, you've you've probably heard me, uh, especially on on well-known hymns. I'll just cut out and let everyone take it. Um, I might not do that on a Sunday when we don't have choir. Um, <laughs> that might be a little <laughs> pure too <acapella. laughs> too scary for the. Uh, People are worshiping the pews, but um, well, I should try it sometimes. <laughs> but this this is a definitely a singing congregation, and it's uh, for me a great privilege to be a part of that. You know, in the in the Lutheran tradition, one of the things I do love about the tradition is this word "contour," which is uh, K A N T O R. Mm -hmm. 
That's the title that Johann Sebastian Bach had at St. Thomas Church in Leipzig. The kind of pinnacle of his career as a church musician was there. And the contour was uh, kind of the color of the dance or, or you know, color of the, of the people's song. Hmm. Um, in his case, he, he composed a lot of music for choir and uh, orchestra and organ, um, all to embellish the work of the congregation. And their work was to sing the chorales, what, uh, or, or what we call hymns, right. you know, the, the um, sturdy words, uh, scripture-based um, poems that, that are then set to music. Uh, so I try to emulate that, I guess, in, in my work. I, I just try to remember this is not about me. Um, to some extent, it is about the choirs, but most important, it is about the experience of people in the pew and, and the extent to which they feel empowered to sing. four different keyboards plus pedals just gives you so much um, variety. David Wilde, our videographer, has been uh, creating a video series about life at St. Mark's, our community life at St. Mark's, and one of the videos he made entitled On the Mighty Flintrop has gone viral. Um, and I think we've got well over 100,000 views off that video by this point. What was it like talking to David, doing the demonstration of the flintrop for you? Oh, it was a blast. It was so much fun. He, he sort of teed it up in a, in, a, in a way that made me feel empowered to just go. Um, mm -hmm. And, and it, none of it was rehearsed. <clears throat> Excuse me. None of it was rehearsed or um, practiced. He just said, I'd like to... Uh, ask you some questions about the flintrop and and just just do your thing and it it's kind of a miracle that it worked out as well as it did. I know he did some editing, uh, which was certainly necessary, and the ending uh, where he gets our previous director of facilities, Glenn Sands, up on the cherry picker to talk about changing light bulbs that are loosened by yeah. the vibrations <laughs> from the organ. That was a stroke of genius. I just. Mm -hmm. That was so clever. Um, I it went so quickly, Michael. It was so much fun to do. Uh, I mean, I've given lots of demonstrations for school kids. Um, on Cathedral Day, we do demonstrations and tours of the organ. And so, you know, it, it was, I wasn't making it up from from. It wasn't like inventing the wheel. I yeah. I've got my repertoire of ways of explaining the the way the instruments set up and stuff. And I have a passion not only for organ music, um, but for the instrument itself and how it's put together. So I think uh, I was able to, to describe it kind of from the inside out, which is not expected of, of every organist. You know, uh, some organists um, love to play the instrument and don't necessarily know kind of what makes it tick. Yeah. But I actually, at one point in my life, thought I might be an organ builder. And um, I spent two weeks in Massachusetts two weeks of my vacation from Trinity, Boston, 
um, actually doing a kind of a, a, a two-week trial period with one of the notable organ builders in the area just to see if I'd like it. And uh, I did like it, but I liked my job at Trinity better. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think the video has resonated the way it has? I think it is two things. I think, first of all, um, Kevin's brilliant photo that he took just because he has such a great eye. I was in the midst of an organ demo for some kids, I think, on Cathedral Day. Mm -hmm. And I had my arms stretched out, sitting, sitting at the console, arms stretched out, pointing at the two pedal towers, the largest pipes on either side. And viewed from behind, it looks like I'm, you know, giving the whole organ a bear hug. <laughs> Or God knows what. I, I think people click on it because they want to know, what is this guy doing? <laughs> and then the second thing is that um, it's, such an, uh, it's such an odd creature, this pipe organ, with four keyboards. The, the, the white keys are black and the black keys are white. You know, and, and then what are all these white knobs? I mean, it's just, it's not something people see every day. Mm -hmm. And so they, they click on it and they watch and they think, wow, who knew? But then, of course, there's, there's the organ crowd who are watching it for very different <laughs> reasons. They, they're familiar with the organ in their church or in, in their concert hall, and they just want to know how, how this one stacks up. You know? And in the organ world, it is a landmark instrument. Uh, it's now 54 years old, oh, but wow. it continues to be... Uh, continues to be one of those special installations that people point to and say, oh yeah, that started a whole movement of organ building on the West Coast that did not exist before. It is iconic. Yeah, yeah that's the word, exactly. So to finish, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to choose a few of your favorite pieces, a few of the hymns or the choral pieces that you eagerly look forward to playing. Oh, wow. Can I include pieces I, I, I look forward to conducting? Yes, certainly. Of the choir? Um, gosh. Two, two choral pieces that come to mind that are absolute gems. Uh, and I think just about any sacred music choral conductor would say this, are um, Beati Chorum Via by Stanford. Ave Verum Corpus by William Byrd. They're both like nearly, well, they're perfect. They're flawless pieces of music and and there's so much fun for the choir to sing. Uh, we never tire of them. Um, there's, in terms of hymns, um, oh gosh, some of my, one of my all-time favorites is 424, I think it is. <clears throat> it's a hymn of thanksgiving. And um, it's just a great union of text and tune. The text is... For the fruit of all creation, thanks be to God. Oh, yes. For his gifts to every nation, thanks, thanks be, to, be God. to God. 
for the plowing, sowing, reaping, silent growth while we are sleeping, future needs in earth's safekeeping. Thanks be to God. Mm. And the third verse, for the harvests of the Spirit. Thanks be to God. Capital S, Spirit. For the good we all inherit. Thanks be to God. For the wonders that astound us, for the truths that still confound us, most of all that love has found us. Thanks be to God. And the tune <clears throat> follows that, that sort of sense of mounting uh, gratitude. Mm -hmm. It rises, you know. For the harvests of the Spirit, thanks be to God. For the good we all inherit, thanks be to God. For the wonders that astound us, for the truths that still confound us. We're still rising. Most of all that, highest note, love has found us. Thanks be to God. Wow. So there's kind of a built-in refrain with yeah. the thanks be to God happening yeah. multiple times, but also just the, the shape of the tune serves the words so beautifully. Yeah, those dynamics work perfectly together. Mm. That's a favorite that leaps to mind. I have so many favorites. Um, it's tough to choose, I'm sure. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> it's like choosing your favorite child. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, in terms of organ pieces... Ah, probably the all-time favorite would be the Prelude and Fugue in E-flat by Bach. They are the bookends of a larger, hour-long compendium of organ pieces that Bach composed based on hymns of his day associated with the shape of the Eucharist. So, uh, the Kyrie, Gloria, the Creed, Sanctus Benedictus, all those parts of our, of our, of our Eucharist, yeah. um, those fixed parts from Sunday to Sunday, they're all expressed in Lutheran chorales uh, that Bach set to some dazzling music. But all of those chorales are framed by this prelude at the beginning and the fugue at the end that uh, is just, well, it's, it's perfect music. And, and the fugue is just a dazzling kind of theological summation, uh, numerical summation, musical summation. It's just pretty hard to beat. And every Come time on, I... So many... So oh, many yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's science, it's art, all united. Um, the fugue is composed with three flats. All the time signatures are triple something or other. Um, so it's an expression of the Holy Trinity. And a a way in which Bach is kind of putting a seal of Trinitarian benediction on this wow. enormous organ mass. And, I mean, what a privilege to play that. I should say, to try to play it. Every time I play it, I say, Michael, nice try. <laughs> <laughs> but I won't play it perfectly until I've moved on to the next realm. And on that note... <laughs> I love how this conversation and your story started with that tiny little wheeze box, <laughs> the small church on the other side of the world. Yeah. And here in this cathedral, as you said, you played this iconic structure. Mm. Really, it's, I mean, it's a building really, mm. mm -hmm. that 
from week to week and for 54 years has given voice to the prayers that this congregation has offered mm-hmm. so for so many people who are no longer with us and for generations who will come to this church for Sunday services or for Christmas Eve or an organ recital I think there is something really special about that sound mm-hmm. and like you said when you take the keys off and there's that two seconds of hearing those echoes yeah there's so many things I idly wonder about where these come from or why they're so <laughs> integral mm. to the way we do this, the work that we do as in our liturgy. And this has been mind-blowing. Michael, thank you so much for sharing why and how this wonderful tradition of ours has come to be. Mm. And, you know, to kind of look down the road and think, there's so much more of this to come. We're not oh. closing the door on this and saying, hey, good job. Right. No, no, no. It's, uh, there's so many composers and poets working today making beautiful things. And, you know, only a small percentage of what's being cranked out today will stand the test of time, but that's mm-hmm. always been true. The stuff that stands the test of time, I think, is stuff that bears authentic witness to the movement of the spirit in that poet's life or that... that uh, composer's life. In, in my work, I know Rebecca in her work, Jason in his work, and uh, John in, in his work here. As, as musicians in this place, we're all just trying to give a very, uh, an authentic voice to the movement of the Spirit in our lives. I once heard a preacher addressing a, church of mus- a, a, a gathering of church musicians, and she said, the reason God made you a musician is because she couldn't reach you any other way. <laughs> yes. Which is a statement on how kind of stubborn and thick-headed musicians can be. Um, but that, that statement of hers has really stuck with me, and I'm grateful for music because it, it really is kind of my, uh, my ticket to, um, to understanding God. And I would say we are completely grateful to you and... John and Rebecca and Jason for creating a space where even when it's not easy to offer our prayers, even when it's not easy to think about worship, there is such a rich culture of expression here that when we feel challenged or limited for whatever reason, we have the music we can fall back on. We have the choir, we have the organ, and we have the incredible singers to give voice to the prayers that we don't have the words for. Mm. So, mm-hmm. on behalf of this entire community, and I would say thousands of people who listen to our services or who have watched the video and thought, hey, that's a really cool thing. Mm-hmm. And also, look at the guy just stretching his arms out. He, he loves that. <laughs> um, thank you, Michael, so much. You're very welcome. This has been fun. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our music was performed by Michael Kleinschmidt on the Flintrop organ at St. Mark's, Michael Pereira and Andrew Himes produced the podcast, and we hope you'll visit stmarks.org. So long!